Today's scripture comes from Jonah 1, verses 1 to 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you. As you're seated, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the book of Jonah. We thank you that it reveals more of your nature and character, your goodness, your love, your grace, and your mercy toward us helps us to understand what it means to walk with you. And so we pray, Lord, as we begin this study, as we begin the uh, number of weeks here in the book of Jonah, that you, God, would use it to help us to walk faithfully before you, that the world around may know how good you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, so today we do begin a six-week study of the book of Jonah. And my guess is that right now everyone's thinking about whales. That's my guess is that you're thinking about whales, because as soon as you hear the word Jonah, then you go, and the whale. I think that's a band from Vancouver, Jonah and the Whale. Every time I meet a kid named Jonah, I think of whales. And so I just kind of know that as soon as we start talking about it, we're going to have that in your mind. If you weren't thinking about whales, you are now, you're welcome. Uh, And that's fine. Uh, If if you're like me and you didn't grow up uh, in, in the church setting and you maybe didn't grow up familiar with the Bible, I'll tell you a couple things that I knew about the Bible before I became a follower of Jesus. I knew that there was a phrase somewhere in there, couldn't have told you where it was or what it meant, but I knew there was a phrase that said, uh, judge not lest ye be judged. And the reason I knew that was anytime some Christian in my life would start giving me a hard time about something, I would just say, judge not lest ye be judged, and that would end the conversation. And so that was pretty fantastic. I knew that about the Bible. And I also knew that there was a guy named Jonah, and that he got swallowed by a whale, and that that sounds strange. Those are the two things that I really knew about the Bible before I became a follower of Jesus. And so I know that on your mind, as we begin our study in Jonah, you will have the question of what, what do you do with the big fish? What do you do with the big fish? Here's the thing. Uh, you will read the story of Jonah being swallowed by the whale and then vomited up on the shore so he could go walk to Nineveh and actually where he was supposed to go. We're going to get there in a few weeks. Uh, you will read that in light of the way you read the rest of the Bible. So if you read the rest of the Bible and you have no problem with the miracles there and you believe that Jesus Christ actually was crucified, dead, buried, and then he is resurrected, if you believe all of that, then hanging on to the miracle of what happened in Jonah is not that big of a deal. Uh, We're going to deal with the passage about the fish when we get there in Jonah chapter 2. It'll be a couple of weeks from now. Uh, But from where I stand, uh, I just want you to understand where we're coming from as a team uh, and, and where I'm coming from as I preach about this. The book of Jonah is a historical account about a rebellious prophet who did not want to obey the call of God. He did not want to obey the commands of God on his life. And to me, as we consider that being the framework for our understanding of this book, it is much more interesting and it is much more applicable to both you and I. Uh, So I think we're going to leave the conversation for the fish a couple weeks from now. We don't want that to be a distraction. We want to look at what this is really getting at, what this is pointing to. In all likelihood, and I mean, I'm just talking statistically here, in all likelihood, none of us are going to be swallowed by a whale. In all likelihood. Maybe some of you are quiet about that, which means maybe you think that you might be and that there is a problem. And I know some of you are terrified of the ocean, and that's okay too. Statistically speaking, none of us are very likely to be swallowed up by a whale. But in all likelihood, all of us can relate to sometimes struggling with how we can trust God's plan in our life. In all likelihood, 
all of us can relate to sometimes being reluctant to follow God into the unknown, especially when it doesn't make sense to us. And that's where Jonah is so beautiful and is so fitting for us as a book of the Bible to study. So what we need to do today is just get a little bit of historical background under our belt, learn a little bit about Jonah, a little, learn a little bit about Nineveh, the city that he was called to go and preach to, and then we're going to talk today, we're going to talk about why Jonah runs away from God. So just a little bit of historical background, talking a little bit, about, but why did Jonah run? That's what we're going to be looking at today. So look with me at the text. It says in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise! Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And the book of Jonah is unlike any other book in the Bible. It's unlike any other prophetic book in the Bible. Most of the prophetic books that we see in the Old Testament, they center around the preaching of the prophet with a little bit of narrative material so we understand the events that they're maybe speaking into in that context. But in contrast to that, the book of Jonah is almost entirely narrative. It's almost entirely giving you the story of Jonah, and it contains only eight words in English, five words in Hebrew, of prophecy that he spoke. So, so the, the weighting of it is upside down compared to all of the other prophetic books. Almost all narrative with one line of prophecy. That means the book of Jonah is less about the words of God coming through the prophet, and it's just actually more about the prophet himself. That's what makes it really unique. This is helping us to understand the life of a prophet, a particular instance in the life of a prophet, but it's helping us to understand what that was like. Now, we don't know a ton about Jonah himself because he's only mentioned one other time in the Old Testament. That's in 2 Kings chapter 14, where he is the prophet who is speaking to the king. It's Rehoboam, or it's, pardon me, it is Jeroboam II who was one of the worst kings in the history of Israel. That's really what you need to know about that. He was speaking to him and wasn't really speaking anything too negative to him. He was talking about how he could go and retake some territory. But the ministry of Jonah the prophet is really unique. Not just the book of Jonah, but the ministry of Jonah, in that he wasn't called just to speak the word of God to God's people. He was called to speak the word of God to a city that was not God's people. He was called to speak the word of God to a city in a foreign nation. And not just any foreign nation. He was called to go to the city of Nineveh, which is in Assyria. And the Assyrians were notoriously ruthless at this point in history. Historians talk about the ruthlessness of the Assyrian army. And because of that, the city of Nineveh became synonymous with evil. So you would talk about Nineveh as a, ooh, that place. Because of the level of evil that the nations around had interacted, they'd received, they'd been, they'd, they'd been the, the object of that wrath and that evil in the way that they related as nations. The horrific stories that we have historically about the Assyrian armies and the way that they would kill people and the way that they would just brutally enslave people, enslave their enemies, how they would dismember them, how they used all, they, they used all of that terror to build a reputation that they were not somebody to be messed with. So you have Jonah, you have the city of Nineveh, which is really considered evil because of the brutality of the empire itself. That's why God is calling Jonah to go and speak against them. It's that evil. That's the cause of his call. Jonah 1 verse 2 says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So the human wickedness of that city was notorious, and it's the evil that God is speaking about here when he tells Jonah to go and speak against it. Now, in many ways, 
when you think about the Assyrians and you think about the city of Nineveh, it could leave us thinking of them kind of like a terrorist state. So if you think of terrorist states around the world where people are afraid and, and where they've seen brutal violence and they've seen horrible things done to foreigners, that's what we're talking about here. Rosemary Nixon is a commentator and she said, it is quite possible that we are meant to understand Nineveh as that which constitutes the very opposite of everything that Israel held dear. So everything we see in the Old Testament about how to treat people and how to live your life in light of them and how to be a light to the nations and all of those kind of things, Nineveh is held up in contrast of that as the opposite of the things that they really wanted, what they believed and how they felt they were called to live. And so there's a huge contrast here. One Jewish author said the Assyrians were the Nazi stormtroopers of the ancient world. They were the pitiless, power-crazed foe. They showed no quarter in battle uprooting entire populations in their fury for conquest. For Jonah, Nineveh then was no ordinary city. It carried doom-laden tragic memories. It stood as a symbol of evil incarnate. And God says, Jonah, go there. So Jonah's called to get up and go and speak the word from God to the city of Nineveh which was just unheard of from any of Israel's prophets. Not only is the book of Jonah unique, not only is Jonah's call unique, it's unheard of for, in the sense that he was you know, called to go and do this. The reason it's unique is because nobody else, no, no other prophet was just sent to a foreign nation. In the Old Testament, we will see prophecies from the prophets to their people that will be denouncing foreign kings, they'll be denouncing foreign nations and the way they're behaving or whatever the case might be. But that's always done from either within the safe confines of their own people. So they're writing a letter going, hey, you know, we, we're speaking against these people. But that was done from the safety of like their home. <laughs> or they were already people who've been carried off into exile. You could think about the prophet Daniel, who is saying some negative things to King Nebuchadnezzar at one point. But he's doing that from within. He's already there. Jonah is sent from home and God wants him to go to a foreign city by himself and to go and preach against those people. Jonah's the only prophet that God calls to walk alone into the midst of enemy territory and pronounce a word of judgment on them. So we've got Jonah the prophet. We've got God calling and, and commanding him to go to the center of the Assyrian Empire's military and cultural powerhouse. It's the city of Nineveh. He's calling him to go and speak against them. Look at the text again, verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, what we would expect the next verse to say after we read that is, and Jonah arose and went to Nineveh because he is a prophet of God and he is obedient to the commands of God, no matter how crazy the task seems, because he knows that he can trust God no matter what, or something like that. That's what we would expect to be next, right? God says, go. Jonah goes, okay. In the Bible, when it says the word of the Lord came to this prophet, the next line is, you know, we're conditioned to expect that the next line is going to say, and that prophet did what God told him to do. That's when we're reading the Bible, we've come to expect that. But that's not what happens. I want you to look at the text. Look at chapter 1, 1 to 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So, Jonah hears the word of the Lord and he does not just want to escape the task, which admittedly sounds quite daunting. 
He wants to escape God. Jonah is not just running from a task that he does not want to complete. Jonah is running from God. Now, look at this map with me. If you thought we were introducing a new book of the Bible and there would be no map, you are, my friend, sorely mistaken. What we see, this gives us an overview of what we're talking about. You can go to the next one. You see Jonah's hometown of Gath Hefer, and you see the port of Joppa. That's Jaffa today, we would see on, if you're looking at a, a current map. You can go to the next one, you see Nineveh. Nineveh is in the modern-day city of Mosul in Iraq. It's like you can go there and see the ruins. That's where Nineveh is. And then the, the next slide, you can, you, you can see Tarshish, which is likely in modern-day Spain. Now, you get some sense of the scale of the disobedience here. God calls Jonah to go to the northeast, to Nineveh, but he goes southwest to Joppa, the opposite direction. And when he gets to the port of, of Joppa, he, he goes down to the ticket window and basically says, I would like one, one ticket, please, one way to the end of the world. That's what I would like. Tarshish is the end of the line in the western Mediterranean Sea. And to a Jewish man in the 8th century BC, this is the end of the world. You don't know anything beyond that. This is the end of it all. You, you go, I'm not only running from the task, I would like to run so far that perhaps God could not get a hold of me. In fact, I would like to run to a place where nobody has ever heard the name of my God. I would like to escape that far away. I'd like to run where they don't know who I'm even running from. For this, this would be like God calling you to go to Alberta. Now that I'm leading a national network, I'm not allowed to say bad things about cities anymore. But I am from Alberta, and I'm just talking geographically, so calm down. This would be like you being called to Alberta, and you going down to the port downtown, and finding you know, the, the Russian commander of a vessel, and saying, I would like you to take me to Siberia, please. That's the equivalent here. It's a massive discrepancy in the opposite direction. Further to that, the way that this is phrased in the book of Jonah could imply that Jonah does not just go and get a ticket aboard a ship that is going to Tarshish. It actually could imply that he goes and charters the boat and the crew itself. This would have been very expensive. There's a drastic step being taken here by Jonah to flee. Don't ever think disobedience to God is cheap. The cost of disobedience is always higher than you think in every conceivable way. And that's what we see in the life of Jonah. And I don't want you to miss the wordplay in the text. There's some wordplay going on here that's kind of fun to look at. God says to Jonah, arise, go up to Nineveh. But Jonah, it says in verse 3, rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Where does he go? He goes down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. God says, arise, and Jonah goes down. The author of Jonah is trying to help us see something here. He went down to Joppa. He went down into the boat. And eventually, as we know in the story, Jonah is going to go down into the depths of the sea. Jonah's supposed to get up and go east. And yet what he does is he goes down and goes west. 
But the westward journey is not just the opposite direction of where he is supposed to physically go. The author, again, is making a point. Jonah's disobedience has him physically running in the opposite direction. But more importantly, his disobedience has him spiritually descending into chaos and death. And desiring to flee the very presence of God is the zenith of that kind of spiritual death. You want to be outside of the reach of the one who is life. Jonah is running. So he runs. The question when you read this text should be, why? Why does Jonah run? It's the question that we have to wrestle with ourselves. Why is Jonah running? Well, in many ways, this is what we're going to be looking at over the next number of weeks while we walk through the rest of the book of Jonah, for sure. Jonah's called to go and deliver a word from God to an evil foreign city filled with people who are easily defined as his enemies. That's happening. Jonah doesn't like the job offer that God has given him, and he rejects it. And in rejecting it out of hand, he, he not only rejects it uh, from the task itself, he rejects it so hard that he would rather make a dangerous trip to the ends of the earth to escape not just the job, but, but escape God himself. We have to hold this in our heads as we read the rest of the book. We have to think about this right now for us. Why does he run? Again, there are specific reasons that Jonah runs, but I want to highlight three general reasons that he flees, and they're the same three general reasons that any of us disobey God. I want us to wrestle with this today. Why does Jonah run first? He doesn't trust God, and he thinks he knows better. He doesn't trust God, and he thinks he knows better. His running is a rebellious refusal to obey. He does not understand why God would have him, who is this holy prophet of God, why God would send him to an evil city like Nineveh and call them to repent and turn from their wickedness. He doesn't know, but he thinks he knows better than God. When God speaks a word of judgment or warning to anyone, Jonah knows that the intent of that warning, the intent of that word of impending judgment is to call them to turn from what they're doing and to turn to God. There is something intended when God goes and speaks a word through his prophet to a people. And because Jonah knows the nature and character of God, he knows that this commissioning to go and to preach to them means that if they repent, God intends to forgive them. And he doesn't like that. Jonah has the opportunity to walk with God into a hostile territory, into the heart of an evil city, and he has the opportunity to see a whole bunch of lives transformed and people repent of their wicked ways. But to him, that would be horrible because they are not the right kind of people. They're foreign enemies. They're evil, wicked people who've done evil, wicked things even to his people. And Jonah cannot handle the fact that perhaps God loves them too. Jonah can't see a valid reason to go and call out the, Nineveh, or the people of Nineveh, so he doesn't. God says, go do this, and he goes, I don't see any point in doing that. In fact, I don't want to do that, and I think that is wrong, and I am sure that I know better than the call of God. I know better than God himself, and so I'm going to go the other direction, and so he runs. Christ said he mistrust toward God always begins with the assumption that you know better than him. Mistrust toward God 
always begins with the assumption that you know better than him. Jonah doesn't trust God because Jonah thinks he knows better. It's the same reason that you and I might be tempted to not trust God today. Ultimately, all disobedience is the result of a refusal to trust God. But you need to know that just because you do not understand why God would call you to do something, it does not mean you should not do it. Jonah doesn't trust God, thinks he knows better. That in and of itself is a rejection of the goodness of God. And that rejection of his goodness comes with what we would call a rejection of his omniscience. God is omniscient. That means God knows all things. He knows everything. And when Jonah believes that he knows better than God, he is rejecting the omniscience of God. He's rejecting the fact that God has a plan, that God knows what he is doing. We might not always understand the things that God is doing, but he does, and that is enough. It's not easy, but it requires trust. God is omniscient. He knows all things. He knows the end from the very, very beginning. And ultimately, that is good news for us. So why does he run? He thinks he knows better than God. Secondly, why does he run at this low point here when he's all caught up in his rebellion? Jonah falsely thinks that he can actually flee from the presence of God. Look at the text. Verse 3 says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Just stop there for a second. He's not just trying to get out of town. This isn't like he's thinking, if I put some time and space between me and the place that God wants me to be, I'll probably be fine. He doesn't just think that. He thinks that and he wants to flee from the presence of the Lord. He thinks that he can run and escape God. Keep going in the text. It says, He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish a long ways away. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Christ City, you cannot flee the presence of the Lord. Jonah's going to realize that later on, but in the moment, he sets his heart on this escape. This is what happens when we get into a place where we're not trusting God. We start to forget the things that we know. Jonah is a prophet. Jonah was raised in a good Jewish home learning the Old Testament. Jonah knows the Psalms. Jonah knows the Bible. Jonah understands that there is no way he can flee the presence of God. But when you get caught up in your own rebellion, when you get caught up in your own sense of, I know better than God, you start to make mistakes. Jonah's no fool, but he's acting like a fool. Jonah's not an idiot, he's acting like an idiot. You can't flee God, and he knows that. He knows that. He's going to come to his senses later on. He knows that. He also knows that Psalm 139, verse 7 says, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, there you are. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Jonah knows this. You know this. I know this. 
But in the moments of sinful rebellion and rejection of God's goodness and kindness, when we get all caught up in ourselves, I'm just telling you, we forget. We forget. God is omnipresent. There is nowhere that he is not. And that is ultimately good news, even for rebels like Jonah. So why does he run? The first thing is he thinks he knows better than God. Why does he run? The second thing is he wrongly believes he can flee the very presence of God. But third, why does he run? He thinks if he is the one who is in control of his own destiny, he'll be better off. So he takes matters into his own hands. In his own strength, he goes the opposite direction he is supposed to go. In his own strength, he finds passage on a ship. In his own strength, he negotiates a price for that passage. And with his own funds, he pays the way. He's in control. Self-made man. Probably quotes the poem Invictus. Right? Matters not how straight the gate nor charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Let me know how that works for you. I'm not qualified for the job of being in control. And then there's Jonah. But I bet that's what he's thinking. If I take control, I will be in control, and I will make sure that I'm not uncomfortable doing things I don't want to do because I'm my own man. For a few fleeting hours, he might think he is in control, but in his own strength, he cannot flee the knowledge of God, the presence of God, or the power of God. God is not so weak and absent that we can assume control in our own lives. The best we have is an illusion of that control. But that is not bad news, that is good news. Because he is all-knowing, ever-present, and all-powerful. God is in control, not us. That is good news. But when we don't trust God, we tend to try and take over the situation. This is a denial of the omnipotence of God. God is omnipotent. That means he is all-powerful, and we are not. He is in control, and we are not. And ultimately, again, that is good news for us. So why does Jonah run? Well, he doesn't trust that God knows better than him. He thinks he can escape his presence, and he thinks he is better off if he is in control. Christ City, this plays out a thousand times in each of our lives. We're tempted to this. I said God is omniscient. He always knows what he's doing. God is omnipresent. He is always with us. God is omnipotent, meaning he is always in control. He is all-powerful. Anytime we deny these three truths about our great and loving God, we end up headed in the wrong direction into a downward spiritual spiral of chaos and death, just like Jonah. So how do we know that we can trust God? (laughs) That's the question. We know why Jonah ran. We know why we're tempted to. How do we know that we can actually trust him? Like, how can we be assured that when God puts us in precarious situations and when he allows us to enter into difficult trials and circumstances, how can we be assured that he is trustworthy? I want you to see that Jonah's rebellion and disobedience that we've seen so far in the text, I want you to see that they are going to lead him into the greatest storm of his life. 
Look with me at the text one more time. We're going to read it, but also verse 4. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Christ said, yeah, I want you to see that Jonah ended up in the greatest storm of his life because of his disobedience. But the question we're asking is, how do we know that we can trust God? I don't want to just argue it from the negative of, well, if you don't, you can end up in a storm. I don't want to argue it from just the negative. I want to argue it from the positive. You can trust him. How can I be assured that I can trust him? I don't want to just serve him out of a terror that things might happen to me that are bad. I'm going to tell you that things are going to happen to you that are bad. It's how you handle those. Do you think that he is with you? Do you think that he knows? Do you think that he's in control? Yes, yes, and yes, then that's great. I don't want to argue from the negative of if you don't obey God, there's going to be a storm in your life. I want to argue from the positive because I think that we can trust God. And the way that I want to show you that we can trust God is I want to tell you about another prophet who ended up in a storm of sorts. In fact, this is the prophet that Jonah points forward to. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, beginning in verse 36, it says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. See, the prophet that Jonah points forward to is Jesus Christ. And in a moment of desperation, in the moment of his greatest trial, Jesus just laid it all down before the Father. He didn't run from the problems that threatened his life. He ran toward them. He trusted that the Father knew what he was doing. He didn't try and escape from the will of his Father. He depended on him and communed with him in prayer. He didn't try and take control of that situation in his own will. He perfectly submitted to the will of his Father because he trusted them. He trusted him. See, Jonah thought he knew better. He thought he could escape God's presence. And he took control in his own will, and he ended up in the greatest storm of his life. But Jesus stared the greatest storm of his life in the eye, and he walked into it. Not because he wanted to, but because he trusted the will of his Father. Jonah heard the will of God revealed, and he said, not as you will, but as I will. Jesus heard the word of God revealed, and the will of God for him revealed. And he said, not as I will, but as you will. And that makes all the difference. Christ City, God knows. He is with you. He is in control. And he is good and trustworthy. His will for you is good and for the good of others and for his glory. 
Jesus trusted that in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus trusted that in his trial. Jesus trusted that as he was being crucified. Jesus trusted that as he breathed his last. And because we have come to know and see the nature and character of God who always has our best in mind, we can trust that today in our lives as well. Your situation may not make sense to you, but you can trust God because he knows. Your trials may make you want to run, but you can trust God because he is present with you in the midst of them. Your circumstances might make you feel like everything is off the rails, but you can trust God because he is in control. He knows what he's doing. If there was ever a question about the goodness of God and about the grace and the mercy and the love of God, if there was ever a question of whether or not we could trust him, that question was erased when God sent Jesus to the cross in our place and for our sin. Anytime we begin to doubt or mistrust God, to doubt or mistrust his love for us and how he always wills what is best for us, what we need to do is just behold the cross one more time. And you might do that every day as you wrestle through the circumstances and the trials of your life. It could be that you do it every hour of every waking minute of every day, but none of that effort will be wasted. Behold the cross, remember his love, his goodness, his kindness, his mercy, his grace. Remember that he knows that he's with us that he's in control. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. You speak to you more than anybody else speaks to you, so it's important that you have the right words loaded so that when you speak to you, you speak truth. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to say to ourselves, if God loved me enough when I was his enemy to send Jesus today to die in my place, to pay the penalty for my sin, then surely he loves me now that I am his child. And since he loves me even now that I am his child, then I surely can trust that he knows what he is doing, that he is with me, that he has not abandoned me, that he is in control, and that he is working all things together for my good and for his glory. See, you have to talk to yourself about this when you are struggling and when you are resisting the temptation to run. He is worthy of your trust. Let's trust him together. <laughs> we can't do it on our own. We need to do it together, but we also need to pray, come Holy Spirit. Come and help me. Help me do the impossible. Help me do the difficult. Help me do the thing I don't want to do. Help me walk the direction you want me to walk. Help me. Strengthen me. We need to pray this. We need to say, come Holy Spirit, lead me into the difficulty. Help me to fix my eyes on the author and finisher of my faith, Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Help me, Holy Spirit, to follow my Lord. Help me not succumb to the temptation to run. Help me to trust you. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and respond.